Revelation 12, verses 13 to 17. Revelation 12, verses 13 to 17. We'll begin reading from uh, 12, verse 1. This also is God's holy word. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers, of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our Lord God, we thank you, Father, for you indeed are holy and righteous that you have given us your word, you've given us your commandments. Father, we pray that uh, there would not be things in this world that distract us from what you have called us to, that the things of this world would not distract us from obeying you, from following the will of our master. Father, that uh, we would delight in the gospel, the gospel that saves sinners, the gospel that saves us. And we pray, Father, that we would delight that this gospel would go to the ends of the earth, that it would save every single one of the elect. Father, we acknowledge 
that you have the power to transform hearts and lives. Father, we thank you that you have the power to give life when there's only death. Father, we pray that we might trust in you, that we might live for your glory, that we might not live in fear of Satan, but instead that we would trust that our Lord Jesus indeed is victorious, that he is triumphant. Father, we pray that the good news of the gospel would go forward with power even this day. We pray, Father, that your son Jesus would be exalted and that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> When, when the scientists and the military uh, tacticians go and they look back at uh, warfare, what they figured out is that most of the ammo shot was not aimed. Most of the ammo shot uh, missed, missed the mark because they weren't aimed at the target. When you start to look at uh, how many people are actually effective in the battle, the answer is very, very few. When you look at some of these people, you look back at some of these uh, Medal of Honor winners, like, say, Sergeant Alvin York. He, he was one who took 132 prisoners, people who gave up, who, who were out of ammo, and they, they basically turned themselves in as prisoners to him. Now, perhaps some people might start to ask, well, uh, who specifically are all these people who did what they were supposed to do in the battle? Well, we start to look at, well, is it true not only in physical warfare, but also in spiritual warfare? That in the battle, are the true combatants actually just a minority of the people? That could very well be true also. The question is not so much, who those people are, the question is, are you one of those true combatants in the spiritual battle? Here in today's passage, in verse 17, it seems as if Satan knows who these true combatants are. And there's two tests that he has. He looks for those who keep the commandments of God, and they hold to the testimony of Jesus. Perhaps it's that simple. In the physical battle, the, the leadership, the officers are saying, the enemy is over there. And either you shoot them and kill them, or they will shoot you and kill you or take you captive. Here we think about how, oh, with the, the laws of warfare, eh, they probably won't torture you unless they think you're important and you have info that they want. And you'll probably survive. But you think about the spiritual battle. What happens if you don't fight in the spiritual battle? What happens if you choose to be a non-combatant? It's not a matter of eventually getting back to your home country and to your family. It's a question of life and death. It's a question of your eternity, where you will spend eternity. And perhaps... This is enough to say that your fight, your willingness to fight in the spiritual battle is of utmost importance. As we think about this book of Revelation, we see that it, it was a great encouragement to God's people in the first century. 
even as they faced all kinds of temptations, persecutions. Uh, a, a rather young church at the time dealt with all kinds of issues. And we ask, why did God have this design for his people? Well, we can say that persecution and deception and lies were never a new thing for Christ's church. They've been present with his church since the beginning and will continue until Christ returns. God in his wisdom saw to it that the church would have this for her growth, for her purity, for her joy, for her delight in Jesus Christ. The truth that we see in today's passage, Revelation 12, verses 13 to 17, because of Satan's ejection from heaven, he vengefully persecutes Christ's church on earth with physical harm, deception, and lies. Because of Satan's ejection from heaven, he vengefully persecutes Christ's church on earth with physical harm, deception, and lies. We'll look at this in four points. The first, the purpose of Satan's opposition. Second, the plan of God's protection. Third, the puke of Satan's attack. And fourth, the prey of Satan's persecution. So the first point, the purpose of Satan's opposition, there in verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. So I mentioned before that the book of Revelation is divided into two parts. Chapters 1 through 11 speaks about the physical conflict between the church and the world, between believers and unbelievers. And that the second half, verses chapters 12 through 22, speaks about the spiritual conflict between Christ and Satan, or rather between Satan and Christ and Satan and Christ's followers. And here we see that uh, Satan is opposing Christ, attempting to devour him as he is about to be born. And we often think about how Satan is in control, that he is the strong man, that, uh, that the world is under the power of the prince of the power of the air, that they're under the power of the, uh, the sons of disobedience. Yet, We also have to understand that even as this passage tells us that by faith, he is being defeated time and time again. Here we see the repeated pattern of Satan's defeat. In this chapter alone, in verses 4 to 5, Satan attempts to devour the male child as the woman gives birth. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That Jesus died, that he was resurrected from the grave, and that he ascended to God's right hand, and he is seated at God's right hand. So this is Satan being defeated because he attempts to devour the child, but God calls the child up. Satan and his demons are defeated by Michael and the other angels in heaven in verses 7 and 8. Then Satan attempts to pursue the woman, but God sends eagle's wings to deliver her to the wilderness. So Satan again is defeated. Satan attempts to inundate the woman with a flood from his mouth, but the earth intervenes. That's in verse 16. 
So despite what you and I see in the world, Jesus' victory, it often does not appear like victory to us if we're judging by the eyes of flesh. But judging by the eye of faith, we ought to understand that our Lord Jesus indeed is victorious. Some people might say, but wait a minute, we don't see the whole world going after Jesus. Well, there's the reminder. Matthew 7, 13. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads destruction. And there are many who enter through it. The gate is small and the path is narrow that leads to life and few find it. This much is true. Salvation and God's victory does not require the, uh, the salvation and the transformation of the masses. Yeah, this is not what the Lord has told us in his word. Here we think about how the dragon is hell-bent against the male child. Or we can describe that as Satan's hatred of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Americans and Westerners, admittedly, we have some flaws. We have our idiosyncrasies. And that one of those is that we are fiercely individualistic. We're fiercely individualistic when the world, uh, even the culture of Jesus' time, the majority of the world, we can say, is not individualistic. They're, they think collectively. They think uh, of family lines. They think of lineages. Here, I'll give you a simple example. When you think about terrorists and they seek revenge, they don't simply attack you. They want to attack your family. They want to attack your spouse. They want to attack your children and your grandchildren and to spill their blood. They know it will make it hurt more when your loved ones suffer. This is exactly what they do. When Satan was unable to strike the exalted Lord in heaven because he is ejected from heaven to earth, then he seeks to destroy the body of Christ, that is the church on earth. What Satan does is he attacks the bride of Christ and also her descendants. Satan pursued the woman. The term there to pursue is the same word as to hunt or to chase or to persecute. You think about the, uh, of, of Saul of Tarsus before he was converted. We're told that he was advancing uh, far beyond many in his Judaism that he had letters from the high priest and he went to pursue Christians, that he went to pursue after them, he went to persecute them. Why this deep-seated opposition to Christ? This deep-seated opposition is because Jesus receives the very thing that Satan desired. That Jesus is the name above every name. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. This is, a, <coughs> excuse me, this is exactly what Satan wanted for himself. Satan attempted to take it by force. He attempted to take it uh, by power. He lost it all. Even what he had. The good that he had, he lost. Yet Jesus is the one who willingly laid down it all. He took the humblest position. 
even death on a cross. That is how he has the name above every name. Why is it that people, people misuse the name of Jesus rather frequently? Why is his name used as an expletive? Why is his uh, name used as some kind of a filler, like and uh, so people just use the name of Jesus? There are millions of gods in some religions. They have not thousands, they have millions. I don't know about you, I'm getting old. I have, I have trouble keeping track of the names of my family members, let alone thousands or millions of gods. Why don't people misuse the name of those millions of gods? Because they are not the ones in charge. Our Lord Jesus indeed is victorious. Our Lord Jesus is the one that is hated and despised by Satan. And the world follows Satan and despises the Christ who is victorious. It is to the Lord Jesus that all glory and honor, homage and praise will be due. Philippians 2, 8 through 11. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So why, we ask, why is there Satan's deep-seated opposition to Christ? The simple answer, envy and knowing his own defeat. So also to all who follow Satan. So that's the first point, the purpose for Satan's opposition. We have the second point, the plan of God's protection in verse 14. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. You remember when I mentioned uh, several times throughout the series in Revelation that Revelation is filled with hundreds of references or at least allusions to the Old Testament. This is one of them, the mention of the wings. That the metaphor comes from the Old Testament and God's dealings with his people Israel. Exodus 19, verses 4 to 6. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So here God is saying, witness what I did to the Egyptians. He's saying to the Israelites, you saw it for yourself. Even the other nations around saw it. And he says, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Here, we, we think about what happened. Tragically, there was nothing wrong with God's promises. There was nothing wrong at all with his provision. 
Israel, because people can say, hey, look what happened to Israel. They wandered the desert for 40 years. It wasn't God's promise. And Hebrews were told what went wrong. They did not enter because of unbelief. Here, what they ought to have seen, instead of cursing their time in the wilderness, their lack of supplies, what they ought to have seen and acknowledged and given thanks for was the fact that they were free. That being in the wilderness, being away from everything, meant being with their God and out from under the bondage of slavery to Pharaoh. Have you ever thought, if you were stuck, if you were lost in the wilderness and you were all alone, I can acknowledge that would be no fun. But imagine if you were lost in the wilderness and you had the promise that God was with you and he provided your dearest loved one. What else would there be to have? You think about, uh, oh, I have my loved one. God is watching over me. There's nothing we have to fear. But instead, God had his people, because of unbelief, they wandered the wilderness for 40 years. I saw a post recently, a post recently talking about the longest continuous path on earth, meaning there's ocean that separates land. But particularly in this Europe, Asia, Africa region, they're still connected. And the longest continuous path is 13,900 miles, maybe 13,910 miles. And it, it, it basically goes from the southern tip of Africa, so Cape Town, South Africa, all the way to where we know of as the Bering Strait, you know, the northern, northeastern part of Russia, Magadan, uh, Russia. And that's the longest continuous path anywhere on earth, 13,910 miles. According to this uh, author, that distance, they would go up and down uh, at the equivalent of Mount Everest 13 times. And if walked eight hours a day, nonstop, it would take 562 days. So, you know, not quite two years. Well, have you ever thought about Israel and their wanderings in the wilderness for 40 years. As a kid, as an adult, I, I always concluded they only wandered this Arabian Peninsula, the, 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 the kind of the, the land close by Egypt where they left, and then uh, the promised land where they were supposed to go. I, I assumed they only wandered that area. But, but why, why would I think that? Here I think there's a long continuous, they could have wandered down to the southern tip of Africa all the way through, we don't know that. Here we think about the place of refuge. <coughs> God describes the wilderness. The wilderness was the refuge that God had provided them. It was a refuge from their slavery in Egypt. Yet, they didn't see anything good about it. In fact, there were times when God's people said, we're going to turn tail and we're going to run straight back to the slavery that we had. Is this not unbelief? Is this, is this not saying to God, you know what? 
We want nothing to do with you. You've brought us to a worse place, not a better place. This is unbelief speaking. The wilderness was their good alternative compared to the captivity of Egypt. Here we have the time period of concern. The scripture in verse 14 mentions uh, that the wilderness, the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. So a time, let's call it one, and times, that's two, and then half a time, that's a half. You sum that and it's three and a half. So various places in Revelation mentions time, times, half a time, and probably the term comes from Daniel. Uh, so it's three and a half years or other places talk about 42 months or 1260 days. They're all the same thing. Symbolically, this refers to the period between Christ's ascension and his return. Going back to the start of Revelation, that numbers are not specific and literal. They're symbolic. So we ought, we ought not to see something specific. No, no, it has to happen in 1260 days and not 1261. God's design for this refuge was that they would be away from the serpent for the sake of their own nourishment. I've heard it from several that when you look at Western medicine, there is sadly a separation between our nutrition and the Western view of medicine. This, in reality, is a major downfall to the Western view of medicine. It's no surprise that poor physical nutrition will eventually result in poor physical health. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but eventually. Is it any stretch to conclude in the same way that poor spiritual nourishment will result in poor spiritual health? I don't think it is. I think the two are closely connected. Have you wondered for yourself how important is spiritual nourishment to you? Here we can think about various things that can go wrong. So people can say, well, hey, I have, uh, I have nutrition. And I know my, a friend of mine or someone that I know talked about uh, a family member that they get on this, well, I need to eat broccoli. So then they only eat broccoli for three days. And then, oh, I, I need to eat other things. So they eat only that thing for several days. Well, is there some balance that they need to have? Meaning that instead of having only broccoli for three days, well, can you have a, a plethora of different items at the same time? What if we ate it all at once? So we ate all our, our week's food in one sitting. This wouldn't be good either. This is just like you students can understand, hey, what if I try to study the whole semester's worth in 36 hours nonstop? That's not going to go in there and stay very well, just as that whole week's food is not going to go in there and stay very well and provide for you the whole week. There needs to be a a frequency. There needs to be a regularity. And people can look at it. Well, if you just spend 10 or 15 minutes or 15 or 30 minutes, wherever it is, reading the Bible and in prayer every day or twice a day, 
that time amounts that, that time amounts to nothing. No, that's not true at all. God chooses to use means. The means of spiritual nourishment. The means of grace. These indeed are important. How important is this spiritual nourishment to you? Do you see the importance even as others in your lives have spoken about it? Or you say, hey, it's okay, you know, it's okay, I, I'll have time later on, later on in life. What about now? What about when we start talking about the lies that come, the deceptions that come from Satan? You, you need your spiritual nourishment, your truth, the intake of truth, God's word, to guard you from these lies. So that's the second point, the plan of God's protection. We have the third point, the puke of Satan's attack in verses 15 and 16. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. <clears throat> Do you remember the, the comic of the wily e. coyote and the roadrunner? It almost seems like in this scene, the serpent trying to drown the woman with the water, the river from his mouth. It sounds like the wily e. coyote. He, he, it sounds like he stops at nothing. <clears throat> so also with Satan. <clears throat> and the serpent pours out this water, this river of water from his mouth to try to sweep her away with a flood. So what is this water like a river from the serpent's mouth? Perhaps we can say it's Satan's attempt to destroy Christ's church from within, using deception and lies. And it's also Satan's attempt to destroy the church from without, using persecution. Basically, you have two methods. With lies and deception, he attempts to bribe us. Now, granted, lies and deception can be used to intimidate us to fear. But generally speaking, his lies and deception are, are bribes promising us some greater favor if we're to disobey God. Satan's attempt to destroy Christ's church from without comes using persecution, using fear. He's going to make it very costly for you to obey Jesus Christ. So we ask, how are we to battle against these attacks from Satan? Regarding the deception and lies, you are to battle against it with the truth of God's word. We have the contrast to the river from Satan's mouth described in Revelation chapter 22, verse 1. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. You see, you see that picture there. It's not someone vomiting out this river of filth, it's the river of the water of life, clear as crystal. Something we'd want to drink, we'd want to drink from, that we would drink from regularly. We see also the example that Jesus himself set in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days, he was being tempted. And in each of these three temptations, Jesus responded to it with the word of God. <coughs> Here, it's not as if 
Jesus had some higher level response to these temptations. He responded to it in the same way that you and I are ought to respond to it. And that's with God's word as his protection. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now regarding the persecution, how are you and I to respond to that? We ought not to go looking for it, seeking it like martyrs. When it comes, it will come. And we ought not to ask for it. But in persecution, we respond to it by counting the cost. This is what happens when persecution comes, when God sends persecution to his people. It's a calling to account. It's a requiring of you to count the cost. Is following Jesus Christ worth it to you? At, the, at these particular times, you must count the cost. And you must come to the conclusion that in every way, in each and every instance, Jesus Christ indeed is worthy of our obedience. You ought to cling to Christ's promises, and you ought not to fear Christ. Uh, you ought not to fear Satan's intimidations. We think about this deception, this this river. How do you respond when I ask you? Are you being deceived regarding the most important things in life? My asking, even that question, if you seem to get defensive about it, if you seem to claim that there is no possibility, not, in, not a modicum of deception in your life, you've already admitted that you've been completely deceived. The best deception is the one that we never notice. We must acknowledge that Satan's deceptions are always there. And that he will use various things. He will use exaggerations. He will use half-truths. He's going to cater to your sinful desires. He caters to your pride. He caters to your selfishness. He caters to your greed. He caters to your sensuality. You owe it to yourself. God has robbed you. Here we ought to understand, none of us are immune to the deceptions and the lies that come to us by Satan. That we have a duty to sharpen one another, to admonish one another with his word, and to pray for one another. We realize it's always easier to see someone else's deception than it is to see our own. But that's not to say that everyone around us but ourselves is deceived. We also are included. We're fallible. So this is the puke of Satan's attack. We have the fourth point, the prey of Satan's persecution. In verse 17, the prey of Satan's persecution. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Satan, as a persecutor, as a deceiver, looks for different things. He looks for those who are going to be a threat 
to his kingdom of darkness. And he looks for those who are a valuable asset to the kingdom of Christ. These are the ones that he will oppose. Here I think about, I think about uh, opposition on teams, team sports, whether it be soccer or football or basketball, whatever it is, doesn't matter. What do the coaches, what do the opposing coaches see? They look at who are the most valuable players, the assets, the, the people scoring the points, the people most effective in defending. And they will have simple strategies. You know what? You're going to double team this person. I'm going to use my teammates to double team, triple team that person and render them ineffective. Or maybe we, we try to injure them. Yeah, here are, I hear about some creative things. Hey, the most valuable player, why don't you slide tackle him and try to injure him? Take him out of the game. Well, if a human coach can think that, do you, do you think Satan would think the same way? He's going to look for those who are the greatest threat to his kingdom of darkness and the greatest assets to the kingdom of Christ. And he has some idea who those people are, summarized by these two characteristics there in verse 17. Those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Here, we highlight the importance of obeying the commandments of God. From Deuteronomy 4, we read earlier that obeying God's commandments means that we're not taking away from them and also not adding to them. So to obey the, the commandments of God means that we will obey him as he has told us. Not only the outward letter of the law, but from the heart. Meaning that it requires a heart change. It requires a heart attitude. It can't be an obedience that's done grudgingly. It must be an obedience that's done in joyful submission to our God. The taking away from God's commandments is contradicting God's holiness, his will for mankind, as we're told there in Deuteronomy 4. It's us going through with the red pen and saying, oh, that commandment, that's not holiness. I'll cross that out. In fact, I'll just tear out that page from the Bible. It's, it is an affront to our God and his holiness. Some people might add, might, might add well, wait a minute. Uh, but if we add to it, that's not, that's not bad, is it? It's, no, that's just as bad. It's an attack on God's holy character, as if something is missing from them. Oh, God, you are incomplete. You are not whole. There must also be these other matters, and we add to God's law. This is the essence of legalism, when we think our ideas are better than God's, that somehow what he has given us is insufficient or incomplete. The heart, at the heart of false religion will invariably be a different standard that man has. The Ten Commandments are taken down and the commandments of men are exalted. They'll invariably be in diametric opposition to God's commandments. Here we also think about the obedience to God's commandments. We think about the heart of them. 
Meaning, what's, what is the substance of the commandments and our obedience to them? At the heart is faith. Faith is the foundation of your obedience. Faith is what motivates. Faith is what drives us to obey. Just as unbelief is what drives sinners to disobedience. So we ask, what is the evidence of genuine faith in Jesus Christ? Genuine faith in Jesus Christ is manifested in your daily, regular obedience. James 2, 26, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Or faith without obedience is dead. If faith is going to be real, it must be manifested in genuine obedience. In addition to faith, so we think about obeying God's commandments. We read earlier in the catechism, what use is the moral law since the fall? Meaning, after the fall, is there still value to the moral law? The answer is absolutely. It reveals to us God's holy character. It reveals to us his will for mankind. Those standards don't change after the fall. But it warns that in obeying them, one does not work and, and obtain for themselves eternal life by works. That faith, is a, faith manifests itself in obedience indicates that faith is the means by which we are saved. Besides faith, though, being at the heart of obedience, there's also love. This is from Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40. The two greatest commandments, Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, on these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. <clears throat> we see also in Romans 1, 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. That faith is manifested in obedience. It's expression of our love. If you love me, obey my commandments, is what our Lord Jesus has told us. The other thing that Satan looks for is holding to the testimony of Jesus. Holding to the testimony of Jesus is believing upon the claim of Jesus, the claim of the gospel. John 3.36, a good summary of it. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. Jesus has given us some very simple promises. We must acknowledge that no matter how simple they are, they are still true. And the simpler, the better. We as sinners like to complicate things. We like to include our what ifs. But, but what about this? And what about that? This, these are the doubts that Satan tries to bring your way. You think about the simplicity. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. All men, women, and children, and infants are sinners. And what we lack is righteousness. This righteousness does not come by works or by obedience, but it comes by faith in Jesus Christ. Faith 
in the Almighty God, the Son of God, who did the mighty work. He died on the cross willingly. He died in our place. Are you trusting in the Lord Jesus for your salvation? You realize that we who are sinners, we're in need of eternal life. We're in need of the forgiveness of sins. And it comes only through Jesus. It is Jesus alone who saves. This is why the whole world opposes him. Why is it that the name of Jesus is so despised? Because it is the only name that saves. This is part of Satan's deception. Let me try to wear out this name by derision. Wear it out by blasphemy. Wear it out by misuse. Wear it out by mockery. It doesn't change the fact that Jesus alone is the one who saves. And we see that in believing this good news, we have to believe it first before we will tell others about it. What Satan despises most is when a sinner comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ. When they find true hope, true forgiveness, true joy, and true delight in the master Jesus Christ. He sees this as a threat to his kingdom. And that when you and I are, number one, delighting in the testimony of Jesus, delighting in the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is then that we will be eager to tell others of this good news. We consider how this passage, Revelation 12, verses 13 to 17, could be of good use for you and for me. It's a reminder about the insidiousness of Satan's deception and lies. He uses half-truths, hyperboles, exaggerations, mockeries, ridicule, to make the real truth seem absurd and unreasonable. Isn't that exactly what he did uh, regarding Eve? By claiming that God was somehow not generous or unjust in withholding from them one out of however many different trees and plants there were. There's also the commonality, how common it is for those who live by Satan's deception and relish it. You will never have any shortage of people that you can say, well, look at this person. They're successful and they do this or they do that. There's no shortage of those. Satan's deceptions will inevitably cater to your sinful pride, your self-sufficiency, your self-worth. Cater, he'll cater to your rebellion and justify it. He'll cater to your lust and your sensuality. He'll cater to your hatred, your natural hatred of others, to your distrust and to your greed, your desire to create division, all of that. Satan's deceptions will cater to your own unbelief. There's also the appropriateness of fleeing persecution should it arise. It's easy for people to say, only a coward flees. In some instances, that might be true. But when it comes to persecution, Jesus is the one who said, if they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Does anyone dare call that man, that God, a coward? 
I challenge anyone to claim that. Jesus was no coward. He is no coward. And what he commands is that when we face persecution, you have every right to flee, flee from it. We see the same pattern set by the apostles and those in the early church, even as we read through the book of Acts, that they didn't stay to fight. They often fled. They went to some other place and continued proclaiming the good news. We see also the reminder about your own need for spiritual nutrition. Poor physical nutrition results in poor physical health. Poor spiritual nutrition result in poor spiritual health. What is your accounting for your spiritual consumption each week? Write it down if you need to. And do you believe that what you read, what you meditate upon, what you pray about, that these will have an effect on your spiritual health and your vitality. If so, then we must commit ourselves to battle the lies and the deception of Satan with the truth of God's word, that we must have a regular intake of it. There's also the reminder of the hope of the gospel, the testimony of Jesus Christ, by which he frees sinners from the bondage to sin, and he gives us true hope that our sins have been forgiven, that our guilt has been removed, and that new life, true life, is found in Jesus Christ and him alone. May we go to our God together in prayer.